Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. Hey folks, it's not easy to run for office on a genuine platform of unity. Most Americans would like for politicians to stop dividing us, of course, we all want that, but there's a reason why they do it. Fear and alarmism over and beyond the actual substance of our disagreements, well, that's a tried and true strategy for gaining votes and carving out your share of the electorate. When the media gravitates towards this type of campaigning, of course it tends to compound the problem. My guest today is someone who's been through this odyssey and come out on the other side. Stephen Olacara is a musician and the founder of the Millennial Action Project, through which he has helped make bipartisan cooperation a reality for millennial elected officials. But following that, in the 2022 midterm election cycle, Olacara ran in the Democratic primary for United States Senator in the state of Wyoming, making the big debate stage and impressing many people on the way to being runner-up behind Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes in that race. In this conversation, Stephen and I talk about his campaign for United States Senate, criticisms of both the Democratic and Republican parties, and the larger movement to depolarize America. And so I give you Stephen Olacaro. Stephen Olacaro. John, man. great to see you, brother. Good to see <laughs> Live you, Live in, in person. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm trying to think. So you and I have known each other for a good while yeah. now, and obviously we've traveled in a number of overlapping circles have we met in person before I, like, I gotta think about it we know we may not have <laughs> maybe not this this is you know i'm getting yeah. the, i'm getting the full the full steven the yes. full Lakara here yes. you know it is uh yeah <laughs> no it's a powerful powerful experience right off the bat yeah you know, how you doing brother this is just just good Man. to see it oh likewise it's great great to be here in la with you and you know this is a very creative and transformative time yeah uh so i'm great to be in your presence uh during that uh, process and I'm doing well, you know, I'm feeling really rejuvenated. I've taken a yeah. lot of time over the last four months to be in first warm weather places. Mm-hmm. Uh, but second in a, you know, time of thinking creatively about the future and with a lot of creative people. So yeah. I've really been enjoying this time. You know, it's my first time really in about 15 years that I haven't been laser focused on one thing. And I have the time to kind of smell the roses and see uh, what is out there. And as you know, I have multiple interests, not just Mm -hmm. political reform and democracy and bridge building, but also the arts and music. So it's all coming together right now. (laughs) Yeah. So you and I have about so many different, so many different uh, intersections of interest here. It's going to be interesting to kind of weave through them a little bit as we talk, because, you know, we're both people who were candidates for office, who ran for office in a way, really trying to bring people together in, in a way that's deep and meaningful and not just sort of generic and with your typical political insincerity. Right. Uh, so, I mean, you're a Democrat who just ran for Senate years ago. I was a Republican running for running for Congress. But we met after my campaign and before your campaign right. within the space of this larger, you know, what, what sometimes gets called bridging movement. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so, of course, you know, people will know I'm national ambassador for an organization called Braver Angels, which obviously focuses on healing across the partisan divide and creating that sense of shared community in American democratic life. You founded an organization called the Millennial Action Project. Say just a little bit very quickly about what that is. Yeah, we founded Millennial Action Project about 10 years ago, and the goal is to activate a younger generation of young elected leaders, primarily in Congress and state legislatures, to work creatively across the aisle, across lines of difference, and answer a basic question, which is, can the next generation do better than the status quo in governing and leading our country? And we knew that the answer was not predestined or predetermined that it takes intentional effort. So we're working a lot with these young members of Congress on issues ranging from the environment and climate change to jobs and skills training and workforce development to probably the most fundamental issue, which is democracy reform and whether these institutions can incentivize uh, better behavior. And I often say that a lot of people you meet in politics are good hearted, well intentioned and have the courage to do what's right in difficult moments, but it would be great to have more of that happening and you need to create incentives in the political system to accomplish that. So we're working on uh, all of those issues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, your work, obviously I've got a great deal of sympathy and admiration uh, for what you've done with the millennial action project. And that became really a sort of a landmark 
organization enterprise uh, in this larger swelling movement, which brings in dozens and hundreds of organizations, some of them working in government, some of them working in local communities, some based in college campuses. The work of our friend Manu Meal and Bridge yes. USA, of course, comes to mind. But there's so many examples we can name of people really trying to sort of establish I would what I would sort of describe as the infrastructure for re, for reconciliation and collaboration, right? Yeah, and uh, also just trying to, to to challenge the incentive structure, as you noted, and also just trying to create sort of a, a a cultural understanding which lifts up the good in the American people. They can give us some social permission to humanize each other to begin with, and of course, that's a major you know mission of of, of mine and, and this program. So you're you're an important figure, and I've been an important figure in that in that broader space, but you stepped. Uh, you stepped from there onto the campaign trail. Why did you do that? Why didn't you just keep working uh, more or less sort of yeah. behind the scenes and sort of in the pit crew, so to speak? Of right. democracy? <laughs> yeah. Well, we reached a point with Millennial Action Project where we had over 2000 legislators, part of the network. We have people and leaders in all 50 states, as well as in Congress. We were at the point where we're passing pretty pioneering legislation I want to say like once a week or once every other week. And we had some pretty big victories in Congress, like passing the first uh, gun violence prevention bill in over a generation and uh, passing clean energy funding and, and many other issues. And it occurred to me that not just Millennial Action Project, but also the space as a whole, the ecosystem that you're talking about, had reached a point of maturity that we needed to reach the next level of cultural currency as well as political leadership in Congress. And it's one thing to be a senator, a member of Congress who says, I care about these issues. It's another thing for someone to say, this is my number one issue. I'm going to risk my political career on it. I will expend all of my political capital on this issue. And I believe that it was time for something like that, as well as it helps to have visible public examples of what productive, constructive bridging looks like in practice, what real reform can look like in practice, because that becomes a new lane in politics. That becomes a an archetype that other people can create in their own ways, recreate in their own ways. And so I felt like it was, it was time to do that. And then you layer on top of that, Wisconsin is really at the epicenter, a real crossroads for a lot of these issues. It's become a poster child of political polarization. We are in the news recently with the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Why? Well, because we've been known for having some of the most gerrymandered maps in the country. And if the 2024 presidential race is challenged, that might actually go through Wisconsin and through the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So a lot of these massive issues that are shaking the country right now is kind of going through Wisconsin. So I felt like not only is that my home state and I, um, I'm very connected to the the life and happenings of Wisconsin. It, it, it felt like a lot of the stars were aligning. So that's why I, I took the leap of faith, even though I knew it was not the path of least resistance <laughs> running for office in general is not. And then running for the office in the right way is not the path of least resistance. But I, I, what got me into starting millennial action project at a time when the odds were stacked against us was that basic faith that if you do what's right and you walk in your purpose, the universe starts to conspire for your success. That's the wisdom I've gotten from my favorite novel, which is the alchemist. And so even though it looks hard, it's, it's worth the fight and it's important to do it. And and that's the same mindset I had when I decided to, to run for office. Right. So what did the fight look like when you took to the campaign trail? You're obviously somebody who entered into it with a certain amount of idealism. Yes. Uh, you're somebody who, you know, clearly has a, an interest in, in, I think, policy and governance and wanted to set a good example. And, you know, you'll get a lot of pats on the back when you talk about bringing people together. But when you actually, and I know this, you know, from experience, when you actually, you know, uh, take that step in declaring yourself as, yeah. as a candidate and entering the ring, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to take it easy on you. No, not at all. Uh, in fact, they're going to make it harder on you because when they see someone who wants to shake the system and challenge these norms and run in a different kind of way, you're vet very threatening to the political establishment. And so, yeah, they make it even harder on you. And so 
you know, we jumped in and uh, we we had some big endorsements to start off because these are mentors I've had for, for many years in, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I started to quickly realize there is a disconnect. What we've all known and you've known through your great work with Braver Angels is that there is a fundamental disconnect between what the people want and what people are being offered by the political system right now. What I saw that paralleled that dynamic is a huge disconnect between what's happening on the ground with real people having real conversations versus the media narratives that are told among political elites and and media elites. And that those spaces aren't really bridged because of the death of local journalism. You don't have media that's actually coming out to events. Um, I can say that, you know, the media, uh, the state's one statewide newspaper, you know, that reporter never came out on the campaign trail uh, to cover any of the candidates. It wasn't just about us. They, they didn't come to any of the multi-candidate events. And so the playing field shifts largely towards money and television ads, as opposed to real conversations on the ground. So we were having such a great time being on the ground, being with people, you know, just bringing this energy to, uh, to the campaign trail. Um, and then the two or three journalists who kind of cover the race would tell basically a different story because they weren't, they weren't there. So anything that was in person, I absolutely loved, but I also saw the structural issues that are uh, at play as well. And the three that I'd point to most are money in politics, the partisan primary system and the hollowing out and, just reduction uh, of the media industry as well. And, and so those are all issues I'm happy to talk a little bit more about, but the one moment where things actually came together in a positive way for us was the U S Senate debate. Finally, towards the end of the cycle, you, you and I were in touch around this time and, you know, we wanted to get on that stage because we knew that would be our platform to finally break through. And And, and you got a very timely boost from our mutual friend, uh, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. Yeah. Yeah. And the Yang gang. (laughs) Good folks to have behind you. Oh, definitely. You know, it was a rare moment in life where, you're being defended on social media. The Yang gang, man. I, 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 I don't know which camera to look at. I love you guys. I mean, you it, it was so much fun. And, and we did some events together and, and, uh, and that definitely had a big role because we had a, a fundraising threshold across to get on the debate stage, but we get there and it was our big breakout moment for the campaign. The moment that we'd been at, waiting for and looking for and hoping for and finally, we had that kind of statewide uh, intra- kind of visibility and a platform for a message. And, and it was a game changer. So I actually came away feeling very hopeful that the sort of ideas that you and I and others uh, who were close to have been working on for many years does strike a chord. And really, the key is, can we break through some of those gatekeepers to to get the message out? You mentioned then that there's a there's this distance between the media narratives about who we are and the reality of who we are. Right. Do you care to sort of add some some color to that? If you never took the time to get out and to you know speak to your to your kids' progressive uh, teacher or to the your to your conservative mailman. Right. Right. Um, if all you did was tune into MSNBC or Fox News or your, you know, loud charging talk radio host or your favorite sort of, you know, left wing blogger, what is what is the picture you would get versus the reality that's there to be observed? I'll share one one example that comes to mind. So when we were gathering signatures, you have to gather a few thousand signatures to get on the ballot. I, along with a lot of our volunteers and and staff, would be out there talking with voters, gathering signatures. One thing really struck me during that, of course, these are some of the best conversations you can have. But on top of that, people really were surprised to see me as a candidate out there. And it struck me that people have been so conditioned to feel like they can't even access their leaders, just being out there on the ground was a revelation for a lot of people. So that just is one example of this disconnect that we're seeing is people don't feel like they can access their elected leaders 
and elected leaders and candidates, according to the conventional wisdom, don't think it's even worth their time to be really out on the ground. So that's part of the the disconnect that's happening. So I think one example of like the shift in the dueling narratives that that are out there is at the grassroots level, I think people are a looking for a more sane politics. It's not so much that everyone agrees on the issues or there's, there is um, some, you know, nebulous uniformity of opinion that's out there. That's not really the case. It's just that people actually, regardless of where they are in the political spectrum, they really do want to be hearing different perspectives. They, they actually sometimes know that they're in an echo chamber and feel like they need to be reaching out, but don't have the avenues uh, to do that. Are people a lot more curious than you would get the sense that they are? Yes. The stereotypes that people are, are a lot more curious. They're a lot more compassionate than what the political media would uh, usually present. Then on the flip side, what you would see from the media is one from the national level, which we all see, you know, every night on, on any cable news network is, is how they want to always set it up as this binary boxing match, which doesn't leave any space for nuance. And I think they think that's entertainment. What our generation is saying actually is that, uh, not only is that not entertaining is like we're tired and exhausted of that. And we're looking through other means to get our information, but at the local level, there's almost no narrative at all because there's very little coverage. Um, the only things that were really reported on were fundraising numbers and what ads were, you know, people putting up on, on the airwaves. Well, you know, when was the last time you felt like you really learned something from one of those negative ads? You know, it's just, you know, you're not, you're just, so the the narrative there is just that people from the elite media or from the media establishment is that people are really cynical. They don't really care. They just hate the other side. And it's just appealing to this sort of least common denominator that I think is, is not helpful for anyone. Right. Right. Now I think that a lot of partisans in and out of, in and out of, media will say, well, at the end of the day, you do have uh, uh, graders, graders of two evils, right? Right. And it's important to sort of identify who the enemy is and to pull no punches, right? Right. Um, now, you're a person who you campaigned in the Democratic primary, but you also, of course, were preparing potentially to face Senator Ron Johnson. That's right. Right. On, on the Republican side. Yeah. I think a lot of people in politics struggle to be able to engage critically with their opponents in or out of the party while also trying to maintain some empathy and some perspective on on who those folks, who those folks are. Yeah. I want to ask you, um, you must have criticisms of both the Democratic and the Republican parties. Absolutely. Right. Um I also get the sense that you have a sense as to why people on each side think the way that they do. Yeah. Yeah. Give me both sides of that. What are your criticisms of each side, but what's your sense of, of the why that motivates people? Yes. Yeah. Well, just to to the latter point you're making about understanding where people are coming from across the spectrum. One thing I can I consume media that exists in different algorithms and different media echo chambers. I'm listening to the daily podcast from the New York times. I'm listening to Ben Shapiro. I'm listening to a lot of different things. And so when I'm on the campaign trail, I was able to hear almost which echo chamber they're coming from and be able to speak that language. And a lot of times I was able to build a genuine connection, even with people across the aisle and so our campaign really had this motley crew of Democrats, Republicans and and independents. In fact, one of my most vivid memories was the night before the election. We were out uh, doing some grassroots campaigning and we came across a, a couple. They're wearing uh, their Make America Great Again hats. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I had the actually the best conversation that night and you know, and actually one thing that we were bonding on was the dishonesty we often do see uh, from the media and, you know, kind of channeling that real outrage towards, hey, what are some solutions here? And, you know, they both said they're going to vote for me. So 
you know, being able to start from a place of humility and compassion really does go a long way. And I think the one thing that people are really looking for right now is to be seen and to be heard. And that's not happening from from most mainstream uh, politicians. Now, to the first part of what you're saying about, you know, how, you know, critique on both sides. I think the biggest issue I see uh, from the Democratic Party side is an elitism, a talking down to people, an assumption that if you don't agree with me, you're basically dumb and stupid. Well, you know, how many places can you go to and say you're dumb and stupid, but can you still vote for me? Is that going to work? <laughs> it doesn't work, you know? And so just that sort of condescension um, is is uh, problematic from some sectors of, of the Democratic Party. Um, on the Republican Party, I think um, the sort of toxic uh, rhetoric that Trump and, and others who've tried to model themselves off of Trump uh, has become a major currency uh, on the Republican Party side that I think uh, veers on some of the worst uh, strands of demagoguery that we've had in, in American history. And so that's obviously very problematic as as well. And so meanwhile, you've got this exhausted majority of America that's trying to figure out where do we all, you know, fit in here, you know, where, where you could be, um, you know, pro business and pro innovation and you like entrepreneurship and you want to see people to be free and, and promote free enterprise, uh, and also protect human rights and civil rights and ensure the dignity of all human beings. I think, and you believe in taking on the the existential threat of, of climate change. You know, I just think that, you know, there's a combination of views here and a lot of people who are just uh, feeling um, politically homeless because the most kind of partisan extremes is taking up a lot of uh, oxygen today. So I don't know if you would agree with that, you know, that framing of the, the critiques. Yeah, yeah well, no, I, I, I do sympathize with yeah. that. I, I think that that's fundamentally true on, on both on both sides. You and I aren't far apart there. But I would like to crystallize the, the binary here a little bit even even further. Uh, to sort of get your your high resolution take on, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, the culture wars, especially how they're manifesting now. Now, right. there's always a lot of different elements to the culture wars, and of course, we could we could talk about uh, uh, you know abortion rights. We could talk about sort of transgender issues, but I think that on a on a fundamental level, there is a tension in American life right now which largely maps over to the left-right spectrum, but not entirely, because you have kind of defectors in, in each direction here. Right. People who are deeply concerned about social justice and equity in American life, who get slapped with the label woke. Yeah. And people who are deeply concerned um, with liberty. Yeah. Uh, and, and traditional, in, in many respects, traditional American values who gets slapped with the label fascist right. oftentimes. Yeah. Or, you know, some permutation thereof in each in each direction, right? Um do you have do you have um uh first of all, do you agree with that basic sort of framing? And second mm-hmm. of all, do, do do you have points of criticism and or empathy with where you see sort of people on the woke side is coming from? And do you have points of criticism and or empathy with folks who are striking very hard in defense of free speech and liberty? Yeah. Their concerns. I would say both with both. I think that with the so-called woke conversation, this is a, something that started off with, with, I think very good intentions, which is that we should be sensitive to, different minority groups or groups that have been uh, historically discriminated against. That's really important to bring to light and surface so that, for example, we, we understand the, um, the, the, the historic legacies we've had of racism, of Jim Crow, of uh, genocide against native Americans in this country. And I think that, Unfortunately, that dynamic, like many strands of political culture, go overboard at times. And so when the culture ends up turning into something that just shuts people down and shuts down conversation, well, then you're undermining the original goal, which was 
to elevate the conversation so more people feel included and feel respected. Uh, in fact, I think sometimes it's it's becoming, you know, you're not creating any change if you're just pushing people away. Um, the idea here is to bring people in and everyone's starting from a different place. And, and you see that happening as, as many conservatives and, and a number of liberals yeah. do. You see that being an issue in American institutions, yeah. maybe corporations, college campuses, et cetera. Yeah, I, I see it most, I think, most, uh, you know, vividly on Twitter and, and social media and to and to some degree on, on college campuses as well. And I think one of the unfortunate things on the college campus dynamic, and I spend a lot of time on college campuses, I'll be going to Carthage College uh, very soon and, and many others. And so I, I feel like I've got a decent pulse on, you know, what's going on. Um, you want to be able to expose yourself to a lot of different views when you're on, uh, in college, I mean, one of the most unique opportunities in life to really kind of hone in on what you believe and who you are as a person and how your principles match up with others. And maybe you learn from others or you sharpen your own principles in that process. And when you see what happens on some college campuses where speakers come Usually they're conservative speakers like Ben Shapiro is one of the classic examples of this. There was another recent example at, at Stanford University where they just get shut down and then you don't have the conversation. I think what's most important to happen is a real conversation on college campuses. So I feel like sometimes we're robbing young people of a really important education on campus when this, um, you know, when this culture and this dynamic just cancels speakers and shuts people down. Of course, there are, are limits, um, but I, I do think that, you know, it's gone a little bit too far on, on college campuses. And so, if, you know, if we're drawing um, a thread, you know, connecting these different points and phenomena, I think that you would have a lot of people on the right saying, hey, cancel culture is this huge problem right. on the left. It has to do with the fact that people on the left just automatically think that everything is racist. They think that because they think something is racist or sexist or, or what have you, that they have the right to just shut down conversation. This has to do with, you know, a thing like critical race theory and other things. But if critical race theory is a problem here. Well, then we need to make sure that this doesn't become something that captures our institutions, captures our schools, captures our kids' education. And right. suddenly you, you, you trace the logic out far enough. And for some people, I think at least, they'll look at a governor like Ron DeSantis in Florida, who, you know, very plausible uh, Republican nominee for president uh, at the moment, um, who, you know, is is pushing uh, forward uh, legislation in varying ways, sort of, I think, seeking to uh, seeking to circumscribe, perhaps, the degree to which people, educators, perhaps, are able to teach from a certain framework or at the very least um, use that framework as sort of the sole lens through which um, uh, uh, certain issues can be uh, really uh, discussed and developed in a classroom setting. Right. But you have a lot of people saying, well, wait a second, you're responding against people who you think are threatening free speech by curtailing their free speech in the process of how how they perform their jobs as as educators. Yeah, so, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about sort of the legislative approach that Republicans like Ron DeSantis and others are taking in their reaction to right. some of these things. And do you have any issues with that? Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, you have a wokeism crisis on both sides of the aisle. I mean, what what you're describing with with Ron DeSantis is a form of conservative wokeism. Essentially, it's it's performative art. Are you going to trademark that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a form of you know, performative art to stoke certain emotions and to position himself to run for president. Frankly, that that's what he's trying to do. I mean, it's not providing a better business environment for people in Florida. That sure as heck is not happening. It's it's trying to sort of ingratiate himself with certain uh, activists and and donors. And yeah, so cancel culture is happening on on the extreme left as well as the extreme right. And so it's worth although I think that the yeah. thing that concerns a lot of people is that, you know, when you say extreme, you, you can paint the picture in a way to where it seems like these things are off at the fringes. Right. But I think that what you would have people on each side, maybe they wouldn't say it about both sides, but they'd say it about the side opposite to them. No, that's mainstream on the other side. Right. right? Yeah. And that's no. and that's the issue, or at least as a lot of people see it. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, I should correct what I said a second ago, because it, it's. I'm not talking about something 
on the ideological spectrum here when I say extreme. I see people on the center left and center right who've been uh, engaging in, in cancer cu- cancel culture as well. It's more of, um, you know, how, you know, how much are you willing to, you know, traffic in some of the worst incentives and in politics to get ahead is essentially it. And you could be anywhere on the political spectrum and engage in that. And often it's not so much the left to right spectrum. It's a Y axis of politics of who's in it for a higher mission and a cause that to, to make life better and who's just there for pure power and ambition. And and so that's often the bigger uh, difference that I'm seeing, but just to say a little bit more on what's happening, I think on the right with the so-called like, don't say gay bill in, in Florida and the dynamic of election denialism. And now you have this big, you know, case against Fox news. And apparently they knew the whole thing was a farce from the beginning. What, Ordinary people heard from our campaign in Wisconsin, and I think are increasingly waking up to, is that a lot of these messages and political leaders are just playing them for fools. In other words, what I mean by that is they're engaging this sort of active manipulation to pit people against each other, inflame these culture wars so they can get ahead politically. In some ways, this is like the oldest trick in the book. If you look at the history of the human race, you've had these ambitious political leaders get ahead by dividing people. Uh, there've been plenty of movies, you know, made about this kind of dynamic too. And so I just think that us as a citizenry need to be able to see that clearly and call it out when we do and not reward those politicians and media figures, you know, when they do that. And yeah, go ahead. Well, so I, right. And so divide and conquer is a tried and true strategy. Right. And I, I think I agree with you that yeah, most people can sort of see that even if they sympathize a bit more with one side than the other, that this is sort of a game that is being p- played broadly right. in politics. And I think it's so deeply rooted in so much of our political culture that I think that many people just take it for granted that that's just the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think we want to see something, something different, something better. That's right. But even if you can acknowledge that there's the cynical game being played, right, um, in high places uh, in our politics, it doesn't necessarily mean that seeing that other people are trying to divide us in a negative way automatically points us to the positive areas in which we can come together. Right. And I think that you'll have many people who will say that, well, yeah, I know that folks are trying to tear us apart and whatnot, but at the end of the day, even if you take that out of it, you know, how can I truly, fully share a democracy with somebody who, let's just say, for example, disagrees with me that an unborn child is a human life or, you know, flip it around. How can I really trust somebody, you know, a fellow American who sees me as a trans person as basically not existing at all, right. you know, sort of seeming to deny my my humanity in the way I in the way I look at that if right. I'm such an individual. Right. Yeah. What do we what do we say to folks when the rubber hits the road on certain cultural issues that can feel almost rigidly zero sum? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because uh, everybody can't, you know, y- you can't parse every issue in a way that satisfies everybody equally. In fact, you can rarely do that at all. And on some issues, the differences really seem to hurt. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good way of putting it. The differences do seem to hurt sometimes. Well, I think the first step is to realize that on those issues that feel zero sum, that if you're trying to find common ground or a common understanding, that doesn't necessarily mean you're splitting the difference and meeting in the center. That's not necessarily going to lead to a good place. Um, you know, how do you split the difference on, on human rights? And instead, what I think it is, the metaphor I would use is you think about building a bridge, which is what we're doing literally and figuratively in some ways. I think that a bridge without a solid foundation is destined to fall. So how do you build that foundation? You build it by bringing your full story, your full life experience, who you are and what you believe. You should bring your convictions and principles. So sometimes this process is described as as zero sum and you got to check your beliefs and your values at the door. And we're saying, no, like you should bring that to the table because that's how you're going to have a foundation of honesty and trust and of common values. 
Now, once you've kind of built that, then you might wind up in a different place than you thought was was really possible. I think that, you know, on criminal justice reform, for example, when you historically had a consensus in the 90s of actually both parties saying we should just incarcerate more people. That's what the 90s era crime bill did. Now you're seeing an alignment around people who says we need to be more compassionate and being believe in redemption, not because not just because we believe that's the social justice position, but also because you might be a person of faith and you believe in giving people second chances. You may be a fiscal conservative who wants to use our public resources more efficiently. You may be a libertarian who believes that government is the problem. You want to reduce the size of government. All of those values can align around having criminal justice reform along the lines of the first step act that passed recently. So that's something that only happens when you have the solid foundation or real conversation happening. So an issue that maybe used to feel like it was zero sum, which is either you have safety um, and incarceration or you have crime and decarceration. And instead we're saying, uh, that's a false framing. And that's, I, and I think that can be applied to a lot of issues. Yeah. So in other words, you don't have to choose between security, um, and a just treatment of, of human beings, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't have to choose between security and, and humanity. Yeah, exactly. You can have safe streets and be, uh, you know, upholding the basic dignity that, that people deserve. And, and millennial action project was able to pass a number of uh, criminal justice reform bills along those lines. And, and so it's real. And I think to use the example you were mentioning of abortion, this is going to continue churning for, for a number of years here in America. I think this is a classic issue where the people in higher up positions are, are kind of using us to, to, um, to be attacking each other all the time. But Here's just like one one slice of the debate that I think could be improved much more, which is this feeling that no one is really pro-abortion, if you think about it. You know, I've had people who are very close to me who have had abortions because due to their life experiences, that was the right thing to do. It was one of the most gut-wrenching decisions they've ever made in their lives. And to say that they are pro-abortion is completely false. It's just that, you know, we ascribe these labels to people to paint them as the enemy, which is very useful for raising money politically, not very helpful for protecting, you know, human beings and, and doing uh, right by human beings involved. And, and then so I just think that's just one, I mean, we're not going to solve the abortion debate right here, but that's just one sliver of how we're really miss, I think, characterizing um, people in, in a way that's not helpful. Hmm. Do you think then that the, the polarizing narratives, the culture wars, are they distracting us from issues that really, really should be focusing in on? Yeah. And if that's the case, what are some of the issues that we're not paying enough attention to because we're dedicating so much emotional bandwidth to these things that divide us. Yeah. I mean, there's so many issues I could point to, but I'm just going to focus on one that I think that the political and media elites are trying to play this game of misdirection. But if we actually kind of focus our minds, it would make a huge difference, which is the need for systemic democracy reform. I think that what's underneath the surface of a lot of these issues, whether it's, you know, trans rights, for example, has taken up a huge amount of oxygen because it's really helpful to demonize people over this issue and raise a ton of money off of it. And so the issue is not really, you know, I'm a full supporter of trans rights and having a rational conversation about this, but the issue that's being presented is really not about trans rights. It's really about who can send out fundraising emails and ensure that they've been able to raise millions of dollars for not only their next reelection so they can stay in office, but also so they can pay party dues to their party's leadership so they can get access to more influential committees in Congress, just as an example, or so you can get on Fox News or MSNBC by playing this game. And so that's just a really good example of how 
these guys and what I call the political industrial complex, they could care less about your human rights. So what they want is your money. And that's the root issue here. So all of this misdirection is really distracting us from the real issue, which is just follow the money. All these actions can really be traced back to people who are trying to make money off of these issues. And that's why I'm such a big supporter of clean election laws and other things that sort of curb and cut off uh, that incentive, which which is one of the biggest incentives for a lot of these divisive issues. So I think on our campaign, as we had these conversations with people and said, hey, here's what's really going on behind the scenes in politics. And here are the real reforms that can change the incentive. It was a revolution for so many people on the left, right, and middle. And the more that we're distracted from these issues, the more we're really, I think, missing the boat on what's really needed here. Well, go ahead and give me a little bit about yeah. uh, about that. So what would a restructuring of the American electoral process uh look like one that actually could succeed in helping to, I imagine, sort of depolarize our yeah. politics a bit, focus us in on the material issues that matter and perhaps more uh, accurately or adequately reflect the real will yeah. of the American people. Yeah. I mean, you just articulated and it's worth reiterating the three motivations here is, is one to sort of depolarize, which doesn't mean, again, agree on everything. It's just have real conversations across lines of difference which a diverse democracy requires. The second, I'm going to rephrase something that you said, which is having elected leaders do their jobs, which I think is a reasonable expectation. And what people don't realize is they're mostly not doing their jobs right now. Um, They're spending most of their time fundraising. And then the third piece you mentioned is reflect the will of the people reflect um, the, the, what represent people, that's the job. And there are a number of studies that show just how disconnected policy decisions are from what people's opinions are uh, on these issues. So one reform I'm pretty excited about just to articulate a vision of here, how, how it could be different is at the state levels, you're seeing more and more of these clean election laws, states like Connecticut, Arizona, and a few others have this. In those systems, you as a candidate have to demonstrate your viability by grassroots fundraising uh, to reach a certain threshold. Once you've reached that viability, and it's all small dollar contributions from people in your community, not dark money outside groups, which is often what happens right now, then you get a grant from the government to run a competitive campaign. And now the immediate counter argument some people will make at this part of the conversation will say, I don't want my tax dollars going to candidates I don't like. Well, first, what I would say is, even if we were going to use your kind of tax dollars, you have your tax dollars going to things you disagree with all the time, every day. But there are proposals out there that raises fees in, in other ways by uh, uh, the one that went was considered in Congress um, would have raised money from corporations that are breaking the law, essentially. And that would help capitalize this program. Uh, you have this again happening at the at the state level, and that does a few things. One is it totally changes the game on who can run for office in the first place. Not just rich people or who have trust funds, but a lot of people get off the sidelines. I talked to people in Connecticut who have this, who said who are young. They're people of color. They're women. They're people coming from non traditional backgrounds, and they'll say, "I would have never left my nine to five job." to run for office, if not for this program. The second thing it does is it takes you off of the perpetual fundraising treadmill. You know, once you demonstrate your viability, you can really just focus on hearing from voters so you can reflect their will when you potentially get elected to office. So that's on the money side. I can go on that for longer if we, for, for that the really whole podcast. Is, that yeah. really is a huge thing. I mean, you're not exaggerating yeah. when you say that, particularly for members of the House of Representatives. Yeah. But this is This goes for you know, elected officials almost in general. But, uh, you know, as soon as you've won your seat, yeah, you got to turn around and start fundraising <laughs> yeah. for the, next, this is, for the so, next election. Yeah, people need to really get a realistic view of what happens in Congress because sometimes this may be colored by what you see on cable news. What really goes on is that you get elected, like you mentioned, and you're immediately handed a piece of paper by your party leadership, which says, these are your party dues. 
these are the prices you need to pay to get on certain committees. And if you don't do that, you're like persona non grata to us. And there are people like former Congressman David Jolly is a good example of this from Florida who said, I'm not going to play your game. And well, then the party basically just left him. And, you know, so that happens. Uh, What the behavior looks like in practice is you're really not in your office. You're across the street in your party headquarters in a windowless conference room calling people for dollars perpetually. And so when you talk about any person's regular job, let's say you're a server at a restaurant, you're a bartender. How many people out there in the real economy can go to their boss and say, can you pay me to do this job while I'm really doing a different job? That doesn't really fly anywhere. And that's what happens every day in our political system right now. And if you're in a competitive race, you're spending easily a majority of your time fundraising and not in the office. Now, while you're across the street, you have lobbyists from some of the biggest corporations going into those offices and handing over sometimes legislative text to a 20 something legislative staffer. So that's a picture I'd paint of what it's really like right now. uh, Those lobbyists actually have time to study the issues. Yeah. Those lobbyists, (laughs) your your Congress people do not. Yeah. Those lobbyists have time to study the issues. The members of Congress and their staffs don't have time, frankly, to be working on legislation. So for them, it's actually a, real service when these lobbyists make come it, in having make done it this. easy for yeah, them make right? it easy for them they've already done their jobs ahead of time and so this but to is, the benefit obviously of their own corporate interest or whatever the case may be exactly and that is a system so not only do you have members of congress not doing their jobs so we got to change this and again you could be left right or center and agree hey we're hiring these people to do a job and they should do it and unless you have this reform this is going to continue But on the lobbyist side, what tool are they using to be able to have that influence to hand over a piece of legislative text? Money. This is a system of legalized bribery. And that's why one of our proposals on the campaign was just to outright ban lobbyists from funding members of Congress. You know, there's some good lobbyists out there. You know, there's certainly public interest lobbyists out there, but use your and it's not as if corporations don't have a say. Yeah. Right? It's not as if, you know, everybody doesn't have a right to petition and to try and influence you know, legislation and yeah. so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, make your voices heard, but don't do it, do it through a system of, of, of bribery. You know, what we're saying is just take money off the table. Now, um, the other thing that we talked about in the campaign that I think is starting to get more attention is to ban members of Congress from fundraising while Congress is in session as a whole, because why, why make any of these elected officials susceptible to that kind of bribery and to that kind of misallocation of time? Let's get them on the job, doing legislative work, building those bridges, hearing from constituents and get them to focus on that. You know, one of the craziest things that happens right now is when you not only run for re-election, but actually sometimes you run for a different office. Now, here's the other thing people have no idea about and don't often think about is, let's say you have a member of the House who starts running for the Senate or a member of the Senate who's running for president. You're not in the office. You're not doing your job. You are told to raise a ton of money every single day. And that's a disservice to your constituents because you're not actually in the office doing the work most of the time. And so, again, I go back to that metaphor of, How many people can tell their employer, pay me my salary, but I'm going to do a different job. That just doesn't fly anywhere except in the Congress right now. And again, I don't want everyone to just be outraged about this. I want people to direct their emotions towards the real structural reform. So like get in the fight Mm -hmm. to put in place these clean election laws and, and framing it this way was how we got everyone from Bernie Sanders progressives to uh, conservatives on the right and people in the center all kind of coming together behind, uh, our campaign, because that is a message that totally cuts across the divide. So public financing of elections, not allowing elected officials to raise money while the legislature is in session. Um, where do you stand on, uh, ranked choice voting? 
Yeah. So this is the second biggest uh, reform that I'd point to, which is uh, let's start with the primary system, because one of right now, if you're running for office, there's no incentive to reach out to someone who's not a hyper-partisan member of your party because the primary election is a lower turnout election and it's the most fervent members of the party who come out to vote. So you have no incentive. Let's say you're running as a Democrat, as I did, no incentive to reach out to independents or Republicans. Now, of course, that's usually true. Now, in the state of California, where we are at present and when I was running, uh, you know, it's an open primary system for for Congress. And, you know, that's certainly a double-edged sword for, in this case, a Republican Party that is very much in the minority because right. it means that, you know, very often you're going to have uh, general elections that don't have candidates from each side. It, right. It's essentially an extended primary into the general election. But I liked it in my particular context because uh, it gave me an opportunity to do what I always would have wanted to have done from the beginning, which was to reach out to everybody yes. in the community yes. from the very start of the race. Yes. And so from my vantage point, at least as far as I, my race was concerned, I was very grateful for that open primary yeah. uh, process. And that's exactly what we're calling for is open nonpartisan primaries. You know, why are the parties running these primaries in the first place? As long as we have this again, California's ahead of the curve. Wisconsin's uh, still, um, you can in Wisconsin, you can you can vote for any party, but you can only vote for that party. Um, so it's a semi open kind of primary system. And so what that meant was we had lots of independents and Republicans who came in the voting booths to vote for me. But we had a competitive Republican primary for governor at the same time. So they said, wait, hold on. I can't vote for you, but then switch over to the Republican primary to vote for a different election. You have to stay in your lane. In other states, it's totally closed. Like New York, you have to register a few months in advance and your only only registered party members can even vote disenfranchising millions of, of independents. So the most important reform here is open nonpartisan primaries to incentivize, like you were mentioning, candidates to be reaching out to everyone and not just the most extreme members of of a party. And what that then leads to is what some people are calling a top four or top five primary system where uh, the top four or five would move on to the general election. And in the general election, you can rank candidates in order. That's what people are calling ranked choice voting. And the one reason why I think that's really important is it creates more healthier competition. And so... You have a number of people out there who are trying to form new parties who might want to run as an independent. I can't tell you the number of members of MAP who are part of our legislative network who told me I would have loved to run as an independent if that were a viable thing. Well, under ranked choice voting, that actually is more viable because you could rank an independent, say, as your number one, and then say the Democrat or Republican is your number two. And you're not throwing away your vote. There's no spoiler there. And so it's just a lot fairer process and it really opens things up. And so what's the net result of this? If you've ever wondered why some of these policy decisions don't represent the broader consensus of your state or the nation, uh, this is a big reason why, because they're not actually appealing to you. They're trying to appeal to a narrow slice of people um, in their party. So the you tail know, wags the dog. Yeah, the tail wags the dog. Exactly. And then you add to that gerrymandering, which kind of uh, um, for congressional districts will uh, supercharge that dynamic. Now, what's the solution look like in practice? It's really the state of Alaska, where you had Senator Lisa Murkowski, who voted to convict Donald Trump. And her approval rating went down to something like nine percent in the Republican Party. So she had no chance of winning a Republican primary. But she was still popular statewide. She was still popular statewide. And so Alaska has this system, the top four primary ranked choice voting. It's really the best model in the country right now. She was able to move on to the general election because there were enough people in Alaska who thought she was serving them well. And then because of this ranked choice voting system, She won and she became the only Republican senator to have voted to convict Donald Trump and actually win reelection. All the other. Didn't she have to run a a write in campaign? 
previously. Yeah. It was prior to that, yeah. Yeah, Teresa yeah. Mikowski has pulled off a couple of She's <laughs> unorthodox. Uh, yeah, she really has, you know. which is which is remarkable. But, you know, I hear this all the time in my state of Wisconsin where there are these policies that are coming out that are so extreme, primarily on the right, because um, the Republicans have a super majority in the state legislature as a result of protecting themselves with gerrymandering. And there are so many issues, whether it's clean energy or abortion or having fair maps. People wonder, wait, like 70 percent of Wisconsinites agree on this. And yet we're getting the opposite. Well, that's because those Republican leaders in office aren't appealing to the 70 percent of Wisconsinites. They're appealing to the narrow base of their primary voters. So let's open things up. And anyone who really resists that are people who are part of that political industrial complex who are profiting on the system as it is right now. Yeah. Indeed. Well, we've covered a lot of great ground here, Stephen. I want to end with something else you and I have in common, uh, which is that we're both uh, both jazz musicians. Yes. And both people who feel, I think, that there's a bit of a spiritual connection between jazz and democracy, yes. if you will. Now, you know, I was raised a uh, trumpet player. I was raised sort of, you know, on the music of folks like Freddie Hubbard and Lee Morgan and Joe Henderson, obviously, Miles and Train and all that. What's your act and what were some of the uh, artists that, that influenced you? Yeah, my instrument of choice uh, has always been the guitar and drums. I would say for jazz in particular, I'd mostly play drums. And then for other genres like rock or blues or funk, I would usually play the guitar. And uh, I, I recently realized how it all started for me. I was in second grade at a science fair in elementary school, and there was a rock band playing a song by The Offspring. And I realized in that moment that I would be Picking up a guitar, huh? Yeah, and now I'd play a rock band was uh, was in my future for sure. So I got into rock, but then I had some close friends. If we don't, if we don't make it alive, <laughs> it's a hell of a good day to die. That's what, that's who that is, right? Half truism, I think. Uh, the offspring. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm throwing at random song lyrics at you, but you've yeah, got a beautiful voice, by the way. Oh, thank you. I that's love that. thing, I, I, I sing a little. My mom was an R&B singer. My dad is a jazz pianist. Yeah, you got some and pipes, so man. I grew up with a lot of jazz, but with a fair amount of fair amount of rock and R&B. Yeah, and yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, anyway yeah, yeah. You know, in, in middle school, my kind of close circle of music buddies, we got a jazz, uh, you know, book of standards, and we rolled through them, and and you know, the rest is history after that. And so I would say. You know, probably my 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 favorite jazz musician of all time is is John Coltrane, um, not just his playing, but sort of what he represented spiritually, like look at a love supreme and what that represents in some ways. A love supreme is a metaphor for um, what we need for a d democratic renewal right now. But one thing I noticed playing in all of my jazz groups in particular, more than any other genre, was the importance of being live, the importance of being present and the importance of listening to your fellow jazz musicians. And that was just a spirit that I knew I wanted more of. It made me, it really shaped my personality, to be honest, like on a very deep level, I became a curious person because of jazz music in particular. And so I wanted to, you know, whether, whether, whether you believe in jazz, whether you believe in punk rock, you know, whether you believe in any of these genres, you start to realize that, it's not just about the music. It's about how you show up as a person. And so I want to start showing up as a person who is curious, who's open-minded, who's willing to challenge the system. That's a little bit of my punk rock uh, in there, <laughs> sure. I would say. There you go. Uh, and a vision for humanity and, and kind of togetherness that I think a lot of these genres represent to just be yourself, to be your your, the fullest expression of yourself. I mean, that's what I get from rock and roll is like, you know, show up, be different. And uh, one of my favorite uh, lines from Freddie Mercury, the front man of, of queen was someone was asking him about what, what does queen mean? And what does, you know, what's behind that band name. And he just said, you know, we're out there for all the misfits in the world. And turns out there are a lot of misfits. <laughs> so, yeah, no doubt. you know, all of this stuff is important. And I, I, as I got involved in politics and pro-democracy work, I saw this as a really helpful metaphor that I, I wanted to show up in our democracy in this way. And in many ways, I think a living, breathing democracy is a jazz ensemble at work. And and for, for us to have this sense of renewal and awakening that I think we need for this new era of American democracy, it's just going to take a lot of deep listening, 
compassion and openness that I think, and, and while bringing the uniqueness of your own originality and your own self to the table, which these uh, musical expressions really embody. There you go. Well, Stephen Olacara, thank you very much, brother. Let's keep the music going. Absolutely. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.